we're aiming to really deliver something that's unique and can really touch us all through all of these guests. Today, we have Supervisor Scott Weiner, who's running for State Senate. And I think it's interesting we get to talk with him and learn what it's like to be a Board of Supervisor member and what it's like to campaign. This is so fun for me, and I, and I think for the listeners too. I was just saying that I'm I'm literally sitting down with some of the coolest people I can think of and meet, and people that are doing things, you know. And so I know you're, um, I know you're out there and you're hustling, and um, I'm getting emails, and it just it's, it's very intriguing to sit down with you. But there's got to be uh, there's got to be something that you do to cool it down because it's so intense. What does Scott Weiner do like to just bring it down. Uh, I do yoga. Do you? Yes. Although in the heat of the campaign, it's a little harder to do as much as I like to do it. But uh, yoga helps, uh, helps uh, center me and uh, keep me, keep me mellow. Yeah. But um, everybody needs some of that. Yeah. Politics in San Francisco is, uh, it's intense to say the least. And you gotta have that uh, retreat. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell me about how, the, how a campaign works. I mean, is it, you know, we can, I watch sort of national campaigns more on news, but, it, you know, I don't get to, uh, I can only visualize that it might be something similar. Is it a grueling schedule? What is it? Yeah, I mean, uh, campaigns are, you know, people do them differently, mm-hmm. but especially on a local level, it fundamentally is about meeting with, or meeting as many voters as possible and communicating with as many voters as possible. And uh, when I ran for the Board of Supervisors uh, back in 2010, uh, I knocked on 15,000 doors and had probably 100 house parties and spent a lot of time hanging out in front of supermarkets or at muni stops and, and you just meet an enormous number of people. And that's really the best kind of politics where you're uh, directly engaging with people when you're running for, say, president, you don't really have that uh, option uh, mm-hmm. with uh, 300 and some odd million people in the country. But running at a local level, you're you're able to meet a lot of people, and uh, and that's that to me what campaigning is about. It's about the grassroots aspect. Yes, you're on TV, you're in the mail, you're doing digital ads, but uh, it's about meeting people. Mm-hmm. And what excites you about? you know, the state senate position? Well, if you look at the, and people ask me a lot why, you know, you, you do all this work on public transportation and housing and uh, HIV and, and, and homeless youth, all this work on the Board of Supervisors, why do you want to go to the state senate? And, and it's unfortunate in modern America, state capitals get very little press coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get more press coverage, say, in City Hall than the state capitol does. Uh, but what happens in the state legislature uh, in, and in the state senate uh, is unbelievably important for our city and for our uh, community. Mm-hmm. You know, California is the sixth largest economy uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state does so much. The state is our uh, health and human services safety net. Uh, mm-hmm. So the state basically decides who gets to access health care and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. The state controls the foster care system. The state controls uh, most senior uh, services. 
the state uh, is Medi-Cal. One in three Californians relies on Medi-Cal for health coverage. The state controls the water system. I'm a, I'm a big advocate for more water recycling, and, and, that, and the state makes those decisions. The state controls the power system. The state controls funding for public schools. Uh, I'm a, a product of public schools. My mom was a teacher, and uh, we need to do better by our kids, and that is the state. And the state can move mountains in terms of public transportation. I, I've been fighting for more subways in San Francisco, a second Transbay tube, so BART can run 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And the state has the capacity, if it wants to, and I want to make it happen, to provide more resources to help us achieve those goals. So it matters a lot. And we have to have good representation in Sacramento. Yeah, I mean, it's um, just sitting down here, like kind of really thinking about it more. It's, it seems like it's the base, you know, for our city is the laws that are for the state. Yeah. And I hadn't put much, you know, uh, too much thought into it. You mentioned subway. Yeah. More subways. Where, is it, where would it go? Where is it going? Well, last year I authored uh, legislation to require the creation of a, uh, of a subway master plan. Um, oh, okay. And the, the thinking, and I wrote, I wrote an essay when I announced that called San Francisco Should Always Have a Subway Under Construction. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, our history in the Bay Area in San Francisco, it, it's really... It's an unfortunate one. We did these visionary things in the 70s where in 1972 we opened BART and in 1978 we opened this, the Market Street subway. Mm -hmm. Two wonderful things and can you even imagine what it would be like without it? And fast forward about 40 years. Nothing. And we have not opened yeah. up one additional inch of subway capacity. Yeah. We have the central subway under construction. It's going to open in a few years. It's going to be a major addition mm -hmm. to our system. My concern is that we'll open the central subway and then just stop again. And 40 more years will go by. Mm -hmm. And the Bay Area is going to grow by 2 million people in the next 25 years. San Francisco mm -hmm. is going to grow by hundreds of thousands of people. And we have to get more people underground. We have to have more subway lines. So uh, that subway master plan that my legislation requires is in process right now. And there's actually uh, a website where you can go and you can provide your input about where you want subway lines uh, to go. And uh, uh, it, we're going to have a draft of the plan in early October. Uh, and it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, my brain is just going to not spinning, but I'm thinking of more things. Uh, you would got the new train, the high-speed train coming into the central station. Uh, but if you got creative and thought about a realistic hyperloop, do you ever think about the hyperloop? What are your uh, opinions on that? Yeah, I, I, the hyperloop is is great, and I'm glad that people are uh, are pursuing it. Um, there are. Uh, I, I don't think that the hyperloop is a reason not to do high-speed rail. It's really. Um, no offense to Amtrak, but we don't have a true statewide rail system in this uh, state. I think if you take Amtrak from San Francisco to L.A., it's like 11 hours. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I grew up in the Northeast, and yeah, yeah. we have you know Amtrak that actually gets you places up and down the Northeastern Corridor, and we need true statewide rail in California. We can't just keep widening the freeways and building more airport runways. You're running out of space. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we have to get high-speed rail done. I don't think it's an option. Um, 
It's happening, right? It's happening, but there's always pushback. Congress, the Republicans in Congress are always trying to kill it. There are even Democrats in California who don't believe in it. And so Governor Brown, God bless him, is so stubborn and pushing this forward. It's really important, and I really love that he's doing it. Hyperloop um, could be obviously transformational. The challenges are, number one, uh, as I understand it, uh, and I'm not an engineer, but Mm -hmm. as I understand it, Hyperloop has to go in a perfectly straight line mm-hmm. and so the way it would be proposed you would it, it really can't go into the center of a complicated urbanized area because you have to have turns mm-hmm. to do that you can't just go in a straight line because there are bound to be buildings and other things mm-hmm. in the way and so it would uh, have to drop us someone off at the edge of the bay area or the edge of la and uh and that's a challenge um i know there are also challenges around you know Will it make people sick? And my the hope is that as this technology and idea advances, they'll be able to figure out solutions for that, how to keep people healthy, taking Hyperloop, how to um, get it into the middle of urbanized areas. And I, so Godspeed for Hyperloop. Yeah, I think yeah. it would be awesome, but I just don't want it to be an excuse not to get the train done. Yeah, yeah, no, um, that makes sense, and I'm with you on that. Um, what other like cool things are the state working on that are infrastructure or the city that it, maybe I'm not aware of? Well, we have in California we have a 19th century water system. Uh-huh. Everything about it is antiquated, uh-huh. uh, and we need to drag it kicking and stre- screaming into the 21st yeah. century. We are still allocating water rights based on you know. The, the pioneers who came here in the late 1800s. On the deed, kind of, what are those called? You know, just whoever established a water right. Mm-hmm. Um, we are still allowing people to drain our groundwater, the aquifers, and cause the land to collapse. Yeah, yeah. And California does remarkably little water recycling. Uh, Orange County, believe it or not, is in the vanguard of water recycling. But outside of Orange County, there's some and there's more, but we're way behind. You look at places like Australia and Israel that have basically mega droughts going on all the time. Mm -hmm. Australia went through a 15-year drought. They do so much water recycling. And so in California, one of our highest priorities has to be more water recycling. The technology is to the point where you can, uh, if you can get past the ick factor, you can recycle even toilet water and the drinking water. So we should stop, we need to stop diverting, you know, water out of the Delta. We need to stop collapsing uh, land over aquifers and, and let's take that, uh, that sink water and that toilet water and make good use of it. <laughs> um, let's see. The, uh, somebody mentioned this to me about you know, is it desalination plants and you know, that kind of happens, I guess, maybe in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and the countries. But they then mentioned... Um, yeah, but where do you put the salt? I mean, eventually, is that the problem with? Yeah, so de- desalination to me is a last resort, uh-huh. uh, and there are a couple issues. First of all, it's like something like four or five times more expensive to uh, build the infrastructure for desalination uh, versus water recycling. It's just much cheaper to build water recycling infrastructure. Uh, but on top of it, desalination is incredibly energy intensive. It uses a huge amount of energy. Now there is some newer desalination technology where they rely on solar, uh, but it it requires a lot of energy. 
uh, and then you have to deal with the brine, all the waste that it causes. And I know there are think people who are thinking about what could we use that brine for, but right now it does create a lot of waste. But um, regardless, it's much more expensive than water recycling. How does it actually work? Uh, I mean, is it um, is a chemical reaction? I mean, what do those plants look like? Have you ever seen one? The desalination? Yeah. I've not been inside of a desalination uh, plant, but they're, you know, they have a, a process, an industrial process, where they re remove yeah. all the salt yeah. from the water. They separate the two, mm -hmm. filter it out. Yeah. And, yeah, that's cool. I mean, just neat things to consider. Um, I was having dinner with a friend last night, and I was like, oh, I'm pumped. I'm having, you know, Scott Wiener's coming, and we're going to sit down and chat. And for the life of me, I can't remember which friend it was. Uh, sorry, it was at a, a girl, my girl's school event. And at any rate, the story was, oh, I love that guy. I called his office, and he just got taken care of. Oh. And, and I wish I had more data on that. You'd you know, probably be more pumped. But that, that's straight from someone's mouth last night. Um, I've called um, my supervisor before, too, to, to get help out with the buses parking in front of our, uh, our house. And I you know, wasn't working right. And, and they helped, too. But how much of the job is uh, here in San Francisco? Do you kind of, I guess, help out constituents? How much of that takes place per day? Yeah, so... Um we elect our supervisors by district. There are yeah. 11 of us. I represent the geographic center of the city, Castro, Noe Valley, Glen Park, Diamond Heights, Twin Peaks, part of the mission. Uh, and San Francisco used to have at-large supervisors where you were elected by the whole city. Uh, district supervisors, you are the closest elected official to the people. Mm -hmm. uh, as one elected official from... Uh, San Mateo County once told me you're one punch in the face away from your constituents and <laughs> in the most loving of senses. And I, uh, you know, I'm interacting with my constituents constantly. I mean, by email, by social media, walking down the street, in the supermarket, in yoga class, uh, it's constant interaction. And so it's great because you, you really do, I think, have your finger on the pulse of what people are thinking. Um, and as a district supervisor, you're also... Uh, the person that when, when someone does not know where to turn and they have a problem and they're just not sure what to do, they contact you. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's a city problem and we will direct them to the right department or try to help them out. Sometimes it's just connecting them to resources or telling them that they, they need to get an attorney or whatever the case may be. And so we spend a lot of time working with constituents and trying to help people with their problems. Is that like, you know, kind of 60% of the day or is it like 10? Um, I, I, you know, I don't know the exact percentage. It's pretty significant. I mm -hmm. don't know if it's a majority. If not, it's close, mm -hmm. close to it. Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, you know, we're, we're interacting with constituents a lot. And not, it's, not always, it's not always about problems. Sometimes it's about uh, people want to make an improvement in their neighborhood and they look to, to me and to my office for support. And so we work with neighborhood groups and block uh, groups all the time that whether it's you know they're they want to do a planting or they want to uh, do a cleanup or they want to interface more with the police about a, a crime problem that they're experiencing mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're working with 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 those constituents quite a bit um, I wonder asked uh, on another podcast I asked 
if there is ever the same question that kind of pops up, like as an interior designer, that does happen, you know, kind of, you know, this just happens. From your constituents, do they kind of have the same? Oh yeah, there are definitely, and again, this is a, as a local elected official, how you can sometimes, you know, really have your finger on the pulse. If, if a lot of people oh, right. are expressing the same concern, you, you know that there's something there. So for example, we have, and have had in the last five years, an absolute explosion in auto break-ins yeah. and bike thefts. Yeah. Bike thefts have quadrupled in the last five years. Auto break-ins are just, if not quadrupled, then close to it. And um, it's out of control. And so I get a lot of communications from mm -hmm. constituents. Either my car was broken into or my bike was stolen or why did I walk out this morning and there were five smash out windows on my block. Um, nice. And it's very, very frustrating to people. And so uh, I, I spend a lot of time communicating with people about that issue, about what the police department is doing. Um, I sometimes will, it's great to be able to forward an email to mm -hmm. say the police department to say, you know, it's not just me bugging you about this. I want to show you the experience that my constituent uh, had. Um, also with uh, homelessness, um, a, you know, a lot of people communicate with me about their, you know, grave concern about what's happening on our streets, about the tragedy of people living and deteriorating and dying on our streets and why are these why are people living on the streets. The concerns that people have when they see a bike shop shop in an encampment or when they uh, see people uh, injecting uh, heroin uh, in, uh, in public. Uh, you know, so a combination of public safety concerns but also concern for these human beings who are just you know, really deteriorating on our streets. Um, a lot of people talk to me a lot and we really discuss a lot the issue of drug addiction. There's been a real explosion of um, drug addiction that we see very visibly on our streets, both meth and heroin. It's not just San Francisco, it's a national problem, but because San Francisco, we're all packed in, you can see um, it more. everything is visible. And so what's happening in New Hampshire and Iowa is happening here, happening here in a much mm, more visible diffused, way. diffused, yeah, invisible yeah. way. Um, the homelessness, so you said you moved here uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, do you think every San Franciscan or new San Franciscan, uh, I'd, I put myself in, in this boat, comes and, and like they're like so passionate about helping homelessness because it's sad and it's yeah. tragic and it's, um, you know, it's sometimes I guess you could say annoying because you don't really want to maybe step over people, but, but it's, you know, it's like everyone wants to get their hands around it because it's a problem and um, I mean, every, everyone must go through that and then it fades because it doesn't feel like there's any yeah. kind of help and how do you keep it kind of yeah. pushing? It's really, um, it is a, just an it's a tragic and vexing problem. And, and the problem is, it's some aspects of it have stayed the same in the 19 years I've been here, some have changed. Our homeless count is remarkably stable. Um, it's about approximately 7,000 people in our homeless uh, count. About half of them are on the streets. The other half are either in shelters or uh, couch surfing or, or just otherwise you know, not sleeping on the streets. Uh, and that is more or less the same as 10 or 15 years ago. What, what's different is uh, the, the level of drug addiction 
um, on the streets is different. But also, uh, I think the tents. Uh, mm. Up until five years ago, it was rare. You would periodically see a tent mm-hmm. in San Francisco. You'd not see it very much. And the, what's happened now with the proliferation of these tent encampments mm-hmm. is new. Uh, and like in the last year or two? Uh, I think it started maybe... I think, I think I recall seeing more of them maybe starting three or four years ago, uh, but it was still relatively confined. And it's in the last two years, I think, that it's really um, exploded. And the, the challenge with the tents um, is uh, they present some serious health and safety issues for the people in the tents and for surrounding neighborhoods. Uh, we know that there is a lot of crime being committed against the occupants of those tents, that women are being raped, mm, uh, that people are being assaulted. Um, we, uh, I've actually gone around, I've gone out with DPW, with Public Works, at 4.45 in the morning uh, when they do the cleaning, uh, and I just wanted to see what they were seeing, and, right. and so I talked to a number of the tent occupants. Uh, I went out one day with a group that gives, brings lunch to the folks in the tent, and mm-hmm. uh, I thought it was a good thing to do, but I also... Um, you know, it's good to give people food to eat. But I also, it was sort of also an excuse to be able to talk to people and show you knock on the tent flap and open. And, and even though there were some tents that were clean and tidy, the squalor in many of the tents, it, it, it's jarring to see. And, uh. and no human being should be living in those kind of conditions. Uh, and we know that there have been some crime issues that have been connected to tent encampments. And to be clear, most homeless people never commit a crime. I, I don't want to broad brush. A mm-hmm. large majority of homeless people do not commit crimes, don't cause problems for anyone, uh, period. Mm-hmm. But there are, but the, the, I think that these tent encampments um, attract some behaviors that are causing problems. And so it just creates a, a, an imperative for us to transition people out of these tent encampments in the shelter, ultimately in the housing. We're working hard to do that. We have a uh, sales tax on the ballot in November that will generate a billion dollars over 20 years for permanent housing for homeless people and more navigation centers, which are uh, a modern form of homeless shelter that helps people get off the streets. What's some of the, so a modern version of uh, shelter, what's kind of the new product that are being built. What tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so tradi- our traditional shelter system is very um, rigid. Uh-huh. You have to, you sort of, you have a reservation. You go in. You have to be in by a certain time. You have to leave by a certain time. Uh, you typically can't have your boyfriend or girlfriend uh, with you. You can't bring your dog in with you. You can't bring your stuff mm-hmm. in with you. And so there are a lot of there are some barriers, and there are, and it's a, and that for a certain segment of homeless people, they don't want to go into the shelters. It's too restrictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, navigation centers, which I like to call shelters 2.0, mm-hmm. are much less restrictive. You can come in with basically you can have an entire encampment come in off the street. You can come in with your entire community, all your friends, with your partner. Uh, you can bring a dog in with you. Um, bring all your stuff in with you, and all the services are there. If you're mental health and substance abuse and um, other health care needs. They'll have a veterinarian for your dog. They'll uh, um, try to counsel people on how to get into more either temporary housing or ultimately permanent housing. And they've had a good, and also for some 
people, we have the homeward bound program where if someone wants to go back to where they came from, mm-hmm. that's just not working for them. Uh, and there's someone on the other end who's willing to take them in, we'll pay for them to get home. So for a large majority of the people who enter the navigation center or shelter 2.0 system, we have success. Uh, but we don't have enough of them. So we, we need to open more. I think there's also an idea of taking our existing shelter system and transforming them into this more modern version of a homeless shelter. You brought up a point of sending people back. Um, I, I almost feel like there's folklore around homelessness. And one of them is that people get a bus ticket one way to San Francisco. Is it true? Yeah, so there, um, I think it used to happen more. Uh-huh. Our places would send people to San Francisco and other cities from other parts of the country and just <laughs> dump them here and then they have no, they have no support systems and you know, maybe if they, they may have a mental illness and then they're just out on our streets. Um, and that, I think, is happening less. It was happening a couple of years ago. There was a, a mental uh, health hospital or a psychiatric hospital in Nevada that was busing busloads of um, mentally ill homeless people to San Francisco and we sued them and they stopped. The city, uh, city attorney was like, no. Yeah, our city attorney sued, yeah. So I, I think that's happening less. We in San Francisco would never do that. It's wrong. It's wrong morally. Um, you just don't With the do ship that. Yeah, it's, it's wrong for the person that you're dumping yeah, them on. Yeah. And it's wrong to, to do that to another community. And so what our homework bound program, which over the last 10 or 12 years has, um, we've helped that I, I don't know if it's like eight or nine thousand people, uh, and I think eighty percent of them never return to San Francisco. But it's oh. only if someone says that they want it, yeah. and the city has to directly confirm that there's someone, either a family member yeah. or a friend, who says, "I will take them in, and I will, I will look after them," and uh, uh, you know, and then there's a checkup. I think thirty or sixty days later. So I, it's a good program, and it's helped a lot of people because there are times when someone comes here and. It just doesn't work for them, and yeah. they don't want to be homeless in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about also the working with the police department as a supervisor. Mm. Um, do you have kind of a partner, you know, in different departments? And is there like kind of a your go-to guy at the police department, and you guys get things done? So uh, I I work with the police department almost every day, uh-huh. um, and some sometimes it's about them notifying me of. Things, crimes that have happened, oh, yeah. uh, but more often it's it's me calling them because I've seen something or something's been reported to me and I mm-hmm. want to see what's going on. Um, just like this morning, I was uh, shopping. In, I live in the Castro. I was shopping at Molly Stone's, my neighborhood grocery store, and the manager told me that a week ago, um, a guy on meth came into the store and punched out and gave black eyes to several of their uh, employees and. Um, uh, you know, injured people and broke someone's glasses and, and the officers had come and cited and released the guy. And so I was concerned about that. So I called the captain just to say, you know, can you look into this and tell me what's going on? Um, we work with, uh, uh, and there are four police districts that, ha- that are partially within my supervisorial mm-hmm. district. So I'll work with the captains to address specific problems or hot spots. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll go to community meetings together. And then I, I also work with the citywide senior management of the department of the chief and the deputy chief's command staff on those kinds of issues. For example, um, I am uh, absolutely um, 
obsessed with trying to reduce double parking in San Francisco. Uh -huh. um, well, every neighborhood. And, and it's, you know, double parking there are times when it's necessary. If a delivery truck has nowhere to pull over uh -huh. um, or, you know, there, there are limited times when double parking is unavoidable. But in San Francisco, we've developed a culture where people feel out that it's fine just to leave their car in the middle of the street. We see delivery trucks stopped in the middle of the street, even if there is a delivery zone for them to pull over. We see taxis or Ubers or Lyfts that will pick people up or drop them off, even if there's a curb cut that they can pull over to pick someone up. Uh, and if people block bike lanes, people block Muni, people cause long traffic jams. Uh, and I have been on a crusade to get the police and the MTA to do more enforcement and they're not doing it. It's been a huge frustration for me. So that's like a citywide police issue where I'm always sort of crawling up their rear ends, you know, demanding that they do more double parking enforcement and then they apparently ignore me on that. <laughs> when for the police department, you know, call them, they win. Yeah. Um, Self-driving cars, you've been reading about this? Yes. I mean, that would help out traffic. In what way do you, have you studied that? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of self-driving cars. I, you know, we have to be real careful with the regulations to make, and that the technology is going to be really up to snuff. And I'm yeah. glad there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of trial programs and experimentation going on now so they can work out uh, the, the kinks. But when you look at where we are in transportation in San Francisco and the Bay Area, it's a little bit scary. Same with housing. Um, you know, we've, San Francisco has grown by 200,000 people since 1980 and the Bay Area by almost 2 million since 1980. The Bay Area is projected to grow by another 2 million people between now and 2040 and San Francisco by several hundred thousand people. And we can't have another million cars on the roads of the Bay Area. We can't have another 100,000 cars on the roads of San Francisco. You know, if you look at the Bay Bridge or the 101 or Soma or downtown, it just doesn't work. And so we have to get more people onto transit, absolutely. And so got, we have massive investments in, in buses and subways and so forth. But that's never going to be enough. It's not going to work for everyone all the time. So we need more car sharing and scooter sharing and uh, biking and bike sharing and, and ride sharing and cabs and everything. But we are going to have more cars regardless. We want to limit it but there are, will be a growth in cars over what we have today with that population growth. So we want our cars to be as efficient as possible. And we know that human error, not just error, but hu the human condition about perception reaction and you know, cars that you know, cause traffic jams because of how they're driving uh, and having better consistency with how cars are uh, driven and better efficiency um, will help. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not there yet, and uh, yeah. I, I, my hope is that we will be there. Um, watch this video the other day. My dad emails me all the time about, you know, Tesla and all this stuff. But really, like, how it works is, you know, when the light turns red after green, <laughs> we go, and then there's a delay, and the next person goes. And a delay. And the next yeah. person goes, so it's like this snaked-out train versus they would all just go at one time. Yeah. And, like, move through. That sounds brilliant. Um, uh, and also, I've, I haven't read this anywhere, but perhaps there's a subscription model to owning cars and less people own cars. The autonomous car drops you off to work, right. goes to pick somebody else up. You just don't even, down they're not parking anymore. Yeah, and that's why um, ride sharing uh, is, and whether 
a cab or a Uber or Lyft or, or um, any other of the services is so important because mm-hmm. you have fewer cars. You yeah. have, if, you have, if you have 20 people who are using a car in a day instead of 20 people having their own cars, mm-hmm. the same is true of car sharing, like a city car share or a zip car or a scoop. People mm-hmm. don't have to own their own vehicle. Multiple people can be using the same vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reduces the number of cars. And so that means less traffic, less competition for parking, less mm-hmm. need to use a ton of space for parking. Um, if we have less parking in our uh, residential buildings we're building, you can build more housing instead of devoting space to parking. So there's a lot of advantages to sharing vehicles. One thing I will say about self-driving cars, a, a real problem that we need to grapple with is um, if you look in the United States, the number of people who are um, driving delivery vehicles of one sort or another, whether it's a large 18-wheeler or a smaller truck, is massive. This is millions of people in this country who their job is delivering. And um, I'm very concerned about what it means in terms of that job loss because these these are often good-paying jobs yeah. that you don't need a, you know an advanced degree yeah. they're good working class jobs and and that is a that is a major concern for me and i don't know uh what the answer is uh, but it is the ultimate kind of like automation replacing jobs and i yeah. want to make sure that we are very mindful uh it's truly it's millions of people in the u.s who have these jobs totally yeah. I, I i'm sure that you know some big heads could get their um, around uh, their heads, <laughs> some big, smarter people than me clearly as the way I'm talking, but um, trying to think of new industries like what is going to employ those people? Like what is a new entire thread of employment? You know? Yeah, I you know, and I I know that there are economists who think about this issue all the time, and you know, but we've seen you know in the U.S. over the last number of decades, you know the different industries, you know, whether they go overseas or they just cease to exist around various kinds of manufacturing or garment manufacturing, um, steel, different industries where yeah. they were good paying jobs and now they're either non-existent or they're really low paying jobs. And we have, it's a huge uh, challenge. Uh, and, you know, not everyone is going to be an engineer. Not everyone is going to be you know, in a position to access some of these 21st century jobs. But it does point out for the future the importance of public education and investing in public education. In California, we've systematically defunded public mm-hmm. education. We are, of the 50 states, in terms of per-pupil spending, we're in the 40s. Mm, um, and it's, it's, it's unacceptable. We don't pay our teachers well enough, so we have a massive teacher shortage because of housing and the, and the inadequate pay. And we're just not, you know, there aren't enough after-school programs. Uh, we have to do better by our kids, uh, and we need more, in particular, um, uh, STEM, uh, science, uh, technology, engineering, math, education, uh, to prepare our own kids for these 21st century jobs in healthcare, in tech, in biotech. Uh, we want our own kids to be competitive for those jobs. Um, I'm looking here on this list of you know things that you've been championing, uh, helping small businesses thrive, improving housing affordability for all residents, fighting for reliable, safe, expanded public transportation, ensuring all kids have access to great public education, 
protecting environment parks, um, getting access to quality health care. Uh, you've got a long list, like things you're working on. Is that accurate? Those are all things you're, you're working on? Yes, among other things. We, uh, yes. you know, I'll say that um, my predecessor on the Board of Supervisors from this district, I used to hear him when he was in office, uh, when he was publicly speaking, uh, would talk about how this job was the best job in the world. And I, at the time, thought he was just saying that because he had to say that. Uh, so I dismissed it. And having been in the job for almost six years, I can now say that he was being absolutely genuine. Um, it is, it's amazing. I've never been bored for one minute in this job because you are working one minute, you're you know working with Bart about how you're going to stop the system from unraveling, which is what's happening there. The next minute, you're meeting with a um, developer to talk about how they're going to put water recycling uh, in their new building. I had authored legislation to require water recycling in new buildings. Uh, and then you're meeting uh, right after that with HIV advocates to talk about our getting the zero plan to eliminate new HIV infections. And then you're meeting with some neighborhood groups that want to uh, improve pedestrian safety in their neighborhood and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it is, it's just never boring and it's uh, an incredibly fulfilling job. Uh, I can see that. It's, it sounds like intellectually fascinating to move through all those different topics. It's intellectually fascinating, but it's also fulfilling on a human level. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to always remind myself and my staff, and I have unbelievably good staff, um, they're, they're awesome, uh, that everything we're doing is about helping people. And so when we're fighting the fight in the budget to make sure that we're protecting HIV funding and expanding it, it's because there are still a lot of people who are struggling with HIV, especially low-income people who struggle to access their meds, who need a lot of support. It's about them. Or it's about, you know, when I, um, you know, when I go out, if I'm at a bar and I see all these, you know, 25-year-old gay guys who are just having fun, and, I'm, and I think, okay, these fights are about making sure that they don't get HIV or the ones that have it are going to be able to stay healthy and lead great lives. Um, or, you know, you talk about the work we're doing uh, for funding senior programs. When I, you know, when I go out door knocking on my campaign, mm -hmm. the number of times I knock on a door and it's some 90-year-old senior who's in a rent-controlled apartment that he or she has lived in for 30, 40 years, uh, they're hanging on by their fingernails and you know the work we do is, is for them so that they can lead their lives and stay in their community and, and so it's fulfilling on an intellectual level but it's um, equally or more fulfilling just in terms of being able to help people and also frustrating when you can't help people uh -huh. and when we see the evictions that are happening in San Francisco um, whether it's due to the Ellis Act or some, something else yeah. and there are limits to what we can do try to help people, we try to help people stay in their, in their housing, and when you can't, it's, it's very, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, yeah. and so there's, there are limits to the power you have in elected office, whether you're president or on a city council, uh, and that's always frustrating. Mm -hmm. Where do you land, maybe you, where, where do you land on the progressive scale? You know, I mean, you know, San Francisco is progressive, but there are moderates, and then there are like, you know, the other side, uh, or, or meaning the, you know, very very far yeah. left. 
So in San Francisco, uh, we're overwhelmingly, uh, you know, progressive yeah. Democrats, and uh, you know, the most quote-unquote conservative member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors would be a progressive Democrat yeah. in Sacramento or Washington. Uh, you know, when, when Mark Leno was on the Board of Supervisors, he was uh, tarnished as a quote moderate, and the quote-unquote progressives were always criticizing him and going after him and trying, they, they went at, they opposed his election to the state assembly, they opposed his election to the state senate. Mark Leno is arguably the most progressive member of the entire California legislature, mm -hmm. um, if not the most, and certainly in a, in, among the most. He's a, like a truly a progressive liberal lion in Sacramento and has, you know, this is the guy who championed single-payer health care and uh, got some Ellis Act reform done and authored the, the $15 minimum wage and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and it just shows that you know, we're all at this progressive end of the spectrum in, in San Francisco, but as humans, we're very tribal, and so we have to slice and dice among ourselves. It's the same as like if you're in a right-wing area of Texas, you're never, you know, you're, you could be a super right-wing Republican, but you're never... Right enough. You're never conservative enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, just ask John Boehner. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so I get, I get labeled as a, quote, moderate in San Francisco. But in Sacramento, you know, I, I will be one of the most progressive members of the legislature. And it's funny. People in Sacramento, when they hear that I'm labeled as a moderate here, they laugh. Because if you look at what I've done, you know, I authored legislation to make us the first the, we are San Francisco has the most expansive paid parental leave requirement of any place in the United States that's legislation I authored I authored legislation to require that transgender people be afforded full access to um, all health care including surgery under San Francisco's uh, universal health care plan um, I'm you know fought for public transportation for water recycling for solar energy uh, for uh, access to prep, uh, you know, over and over again, I fought these fights, and yet I'm labeled as a moderate. So I just laugh. It's just how we roll in San Francisco, and, and in a way, it's good because we are the progressive standard bearer for the country, and the rest of the country looks to us in San Francisco for leadership, and and so when I did this expanded paid parental leave legislation, and Hillary Clinton tweeted about it. I was so excited because once again we did something in San Francisco and it gets out there and then other places um, hopefully follow our lead. And so if they want to call me a moderate, that's fine. That just means that we're fighting in San Francisco to be as progressive as we can be and I'm happy to be part of that. Yeah. I have this saying that you, know, you kind of evaluate all the different truths and the truth always lies in the middle. It could be like 80-20, but the truth is always in the middle. Yeah. So that resonates with me. I mean. Uh, I'm not following uh, maybe as much as I should what you guys are doing at the board, but uh, I, what I'm picking up is that you're, you've been getting things done. And that probably, I guess, translates to me that, um, yeah, you're in the middle somewhere getting deals done instead of maybe getting locked up. Yeah, I mean, it, in, it's really easy in politics. It's actually it's much easier in politics just to be a strong voice. To be... Is it easier just strident. to be a no even? You know, like well, to be no or just to be a, a strident voice where you're, you're taking the firmest positions and you're really um, you know, articulate and passionate and eloquent about it, but you're not getting anything done. That, that's easy. Sure. What's harder is getting things done. And, and, and you can be a strong, passionate, progressive voice 
and you still get things done. And sometimes that does mean negotiating. Mm -hmm. uh, I ideally, I love it when I can get good progressive legislation through without having to compromise one comma. And I've done that before. There, that's a luxury of in San Francisco. There are times when you can just muscle through this wonderful, pristine, progressive legislation. There are times when you have to make some compromises or you won't get it through. Now, you don't want to, and I've learned that I was given this advice early on, you, you never compromise your legislation to the point where it's defective or it's ruined just to say that you passed something. So there have been times where I will pull back on legislation because the compromises I would have to make would be so severe. Yeah. And it's like, you know what, I'm just going to wait a year and try again when mm -hmm. I have better circumstances. It's even more so in Sacramento because you're dealing with Republicans, which we don't have to deal with much locally. I mean, I have constituents who are Republicans, and I work with everyone, and I respect everyone, and I'll <laughs> listen to anyone. But on, in City Hall, we have no Republican elected officials. Wow. And in addition, in Sacramento, you have moderate, true moderate to conservative Democrats from the mm -hmm. Central Valley, from parts of Southern California. And so um, you, it, it, we don't have a progressive majority in the state legislature. Uh, and so you have to, you know, you have to make more compromises and it's hard. And sometimes we come out of San Francisco, we have people who go to Sacramento who are immediately like, I'm just going to do it like we do it in San Francisco. And you have to vote for this progressive measure and then you fall on your face and then you learn that you need to, to work with people. But you can do it. You know, Mark Leno, unbelievably progressive, like I said, maybe the most progressive member of the legislature. He also is super prolific. And when you go up there, I have met with so many different people up there, for example, in the business community, who will say, Mark Leno votes against me on almost everything, but boy, I love that guy, and I'm really going to miss him because he is a gentleman, he's knowledgeable, he has an open door, he'll talk to us. Uh, and Mark is a mentor to me, and I really want to emulate his approach because I think it's the right approach. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I have probably just a little few more minutes, and I have a, just a question. Yeah. But uh, I really wish the the best for you, and I hope you you know you're in an election. I'm I'm pulling for you. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, we have it's cool. 53 days till election day, and it's a it's a dead heat, so we're working real hard every day. That's cool, man. Um, so we're a design team, and uh, I'm not trying to. This is an interesting podcast because. It is about lifestyle. It is, it is about contributing to things in our city. And so I think our, the people I hope listen to this get so much out of this conversation. You know, it's not necessarily about uh, lifestyle like fashion or going out to eat because we have a chef you know, sometimes. And, but this is so relevant. I love the topics. Um, but to button it up with design... Do you do you have a favorite room in your house, and why? Well, that's hard. I live in a um, four hundred ninety square foot condo. Uh -huh. I live in a small space. So I, I I authored micro unit legislation like four years ago that allowed for sort of smaller studios. Uh -huh. And I remember at the time people would say, "Oh, I would you know." You, then we should force you to live in one of those. I said, "I sort of do. I live in a small <laughs> small space." Um, and so, what do I like the most? Um, I guess I like my bedroom. I like my bedroom. I, you know, I guess because I like sleep. I don't get enough of it. <laughs> so it's very comforting when I can go into my bedroom and actually get some sleep. Lights out. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. Thanks again. It's really cool to be here.
Thanks for having me. Thank you.